0: children wade in the water gods are gonna trouble the water see that band all dressed in white gods are gonna trouble the water the leader looks like the Israelite gods are gonna trouble the water Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will um, talk about the second half of Olada Equiano's interesting narrative. Full title of it: Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olada Equiano or Gustavus Vassa the African, written by himself. Um, Uh, The second major slave narrative we're going to be looking at in this series, and the first really super important slave narrative to come out of the Atlantic world. Um, Of course, we looked at Gronasau, but I don't think many people know about that one outside of maybe specialists, but many people have come across Equiano in their their studies. Um, So we saw in the first half of this book how Equiano became a slave, how he was um, kidnapped, brought over, became a sailor, uh, as a slave, uh, was passed over through several masters, worked for a time on a plantation before becoming a sailor. Of course, uh, observed conditions of slaves in different places, um, and then started to, to fight for his freedom. It's in volume two that we basically see Equiano's life as a free man. So this is, uh, this is always interesting how slaves buy their freedom. Of course, in the Atlantic world, in, in chattel, the chattel slavery of, of the Atlantic and in North America broadly, South America too mostly, I think. I think it's a little bit different in Spanish colonies and each, each colonial system had their own laws and their own um, yeah, policies on these things, right to marriage or, or things like this, um, and property. Uh, in North America, which I know best, and in the United States, slaves did not own property, right? least not under the law now this became complicated during the american civil war when we know the union army wrote like receipts for property they they took they seized from plantations property that came from slaves so army needs some horse or cow or something they would seize it but they wrote receipts to enslaved men and women who were raising those animals uh planters often allowed enslaved men and women to have side gigs like this um, but it, the, the receipt went to the slave even though legally they weren't supposed to have property and anything they owned was the property of their master in practice though it's you know both we see the Union Army respecting that and often uh, like slaveholders would slave owners would respect certain property rights because it was in their interest to to keep uh their population happy and tied to a place less likely to run away if they have something you know at home to to rely on it's the same with marriage marriage was not legal but slave owners often you know agreed to marriage because it was it was good for them um still they would break up families all the time if they if if the bottom line required it but there, there was an interest in in it men and women slave, slaves marrying right so where am i at oh i'm talking about Equiano having property so the way he got he got his money is he was basically doing side gigs when he was going port to port selling stuff he he he, he managed to get um basically yeah selling items on the side at different ports um he eventually uh after he goes to montserrat Eventually, I think it's in Georgia that he uh, had earned. He finally got enough money to buy his freedom, um, and he eventually offers to purchase his freedom for forty pounds. Um, and this is agreed to. There's a little bit of tension built in the story. I don't know how much of that is constructed for for the narrative's sake, but uh, not only does he get his freedom, he sort of gets a, a recommendation letter from his his master. That's a weird way of putting it, but basically um, um you know of course uh, a, a a document no i think he gets the, the the sort of recommendation letter later but he does get a, a formal like proof of his freedom um and and that sort of ends chapter seven so that's where part two opens up chapter part two is chapters seven through twelve and then he then we get a narrative that deals with different, uh, several different themes. Uh, on the one hand, we have his life as a free man, undergoing uh, continued levels of, of exploitation and, um, you know, poor treatment as a sailor. Like that's what he knows. So, um, you know, he, you know, that's kind of the world he was in. And that's like Gronasau sort of the same same way, Um, you know, where in the sense that that narrative was very much a narrative of labor and the broader exploitation of the Atlantic world. I think Equiano here sort of exposes this, that although there's a huge gap between slavery and freedom, uh, there is exploitation on both sides of it. And he just is sort of continuing to do some of the same jobs he's doing at sea. Um, which I think actually may lead into another argument that some historians have pointed out is that maritime slavery, still as uh, reprehensible as any slavery, but it did allow a little more, more day-to-day kind of autonomy for slaves. There's a great book called The Waterman's Song, I think it's called, it's, it's probably 20 years old at this point, but it's about uh, slaves in the barrier islands of North Carolina. And the argument there is that there was Quite a lot of day-to-day autonomy that these slaves slaves enjoyed um but the difference here is he can he can choose what ship to work on that's a huge difference here which uh slaves couldn't slaves were stuck with whatever their master wanted them to do so he's able to uh go where he wants any 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 travels across the atlantic he wants to go back to england right um and he eventually gets to england and does that but he he also goes to uh the caribbean he goes to the bahamas he goes to other places he interacts with uh other well he's not a slave anymore but he interacts with slaves in those places um and he and he does sort of charity work for some of these slaves there's a story of how he helps a uh, a woman bury her child um and he basically you know because he's a christian and he knows christianity fairly well and uh, and, you know can read and stuff so he you know takes on the role of pastor here um so we get a lot of that in chapter eight chapter eight is kind of a work uh, a narrative of 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 work yeah in um chapter nine we uh we get another aspect of his life in freedom another aspect of this later part of the narrative which is something you can tell he really wants to talk about. And he's sort of been hinting at throughout the narrative, not maybe as explicitly as Gronasau, or Gronasau's account was just, I was a slave, I became a Christian, and I'm happy that I'm a Christian, and I became, I got free freedom, but the real story here is how I became a Christian. Um, Aquiano's story is really about how he becomes free, but that's intertwined with his christianization and and he does talk quite a lot about christianization he has conversations with catholics he has uh, um you know reflections on you know on theology even here um you know he is exposed to kind of calvinism even where especially in chapter nine where he starts to have concerns about uh his you know, if he'd go to heaven, if he'd be saved. Um, and because you have so much Calvinism in this world, right? The Church of England, which he's a member of, uh, he, that's the church he, he, he got into. He's got that affinity for England as well. But the Church of England is, is of course, has many Puritan elements. That's a big theme of English history, right, is the, is the div- divided how puritan, how protestant was the church of england at various times and 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 different members would embrace different levels of protestantism based on their their values and beliefs. Um so he's getting a lot of calvinism too. Um so he has to kind of go through a spiritual crisis and that's worked into the story too. So it's it's presented as seriously as his struggle to gain his freedom, right? And and there's actually an interesting contrast here. I don't know if anyone's noticed this, but of course, the Protestant um, response to the struggle for freedom is it's a gift. Uh, salvation is a gift from God. All you have to do is believe. And Of course, the Calvinists add this idea of predestination, that God knows who's going to um, come to Jesus with, with open heart before they're even born and so forth. So it's kind of predestined in the mind of God. Lutheran's a little softer on that, but, but still... Fundamentally, this, this belief in the in the Augustinian God. And then you have Catholics who say, like, you got to work for it, right? Now, of course, getting freedom for Equiano was not a gift, right? It's something he had to work for. So these are sort of different narratives, I think, um, in that especially when he talks to a, a Catholic who, who does have this idea of works and faith, Working, going together to gaining your freedom, he he rejects the, that view. Um, now, another narrative we get in this later part of the uh, the story. Uh, so we got his work life. We got he, he got to gain freedom, getting his freedom. We got his work life. We have his uh, spiritual struggle, um, and we have his uh, movement towards like activism, right? And it starts out as helping individual slaves and eventually going in the climax of the book of him petitioning the government for the freedom of all people, even writing the queen, right? And becoming a missionary in Africa, becoming a servant of of the crown in a way through the Church of England and and working to change public opinion, working to actually uh, free all slaves. Which again, I think kind of, parallels the the Christian narrative because because he believes Christianity is something that's going to free all people from from sin so not quite as committed to the Christian narrative as growing himself but it's much more sophisticated because he is intertwining uh, the struggle for freedom as an individual the conversion as an individual to uh, a broader narrative of of Christianity and the spiritual crisis he has leading to an argument that we all can be saved uh through christ and then coming back around to slavery and saying we all can be freed through through our struggle and through our activism so ultimately this becomes a very anti-slavery book even though the christianity is pretty uh pretty heavy-handed throughout uh, the whole thing now building up on some of the things i talked about last time um I talked last time about how much this is an anti-slavery tract and how much he does emphasize the brutal aspects of the system, the middle passage, um, you know, and how that, the power of those stories make the question of whether he lied about his origin kind of moot, less important because certainly the brutalities he witnessed on the ship were real. And that's really where the the moral heart of the story is his, his origin is, is not that important. Um, but, you know, and I also talked about how he was like, you know, there were degrees of unfreedom for many people in the Atlantic world, right? And I, and I think that's, that's the theme you get in books like uh, Many-Headed Hydra by Peter Linebaugh and Marcus Rediker. Um, but, so that's there, all right, um. And he certainly believes in the moral necessity, the moral imperative of of resistance. Right? He becomes an abolitionist. He becomes someone petitioning the government, standing up for all enslaved men and women um with with courage, becoming a spokesperson for his uh his people in a way as a missionary in in you know, I think it's in Sierra Leone, which is kind of the Liberia of England where that you had this colonization dreams, these ideas of, of taking slaves out of the new world and, and bringing them to, to Africa. That didn't go anywhere, but of course there was some who did. And, and Equiano is one of these people who does sort of go back to Africa, right? Returns to Africa. But it's easier for him because he's a one of these Atlantic Creole types moving around. Um, so now his Christianity narrative is... Is really central to this, though. I, I think, I, as much as you want to see this as an abolitionist text, you can't really detach its Christianity here. Um, now, there's different aspects he, he does this. I think one is it, it sort of does parallel the slavery. The f- salvation and freedom are, are sort of paralleled here in the story. But he also frames slaveholders as false Christians, or sometimes he calls them nominal Christians, and and he kind of has this feeling about the Catholic he talks to too, but um, but the conversion is nevertheless involving some acceptance of his master's culture, right? But it's arrived at through the logic of his life in this world, it's not forced upon him. So Gronasau and Equiano, both of these blokes, really emphasize that they come to Christianity as free agents. Um, but more so than for Gronasau, Christianity for Equiano was the foundation for political action. It's not the surrender of earthly paradise for a fantastical heavenly one, uh, although whatever his views of salvation are, I'm not sure, probably pretty traditional Christian views on that of, of the time. But he does intertwine these two, which of course speaks to the what we're you going to see in antebellum America and with many of these other slave narratives when we jump after this episode to uh, antebellum, U.S. slavery um, it's a big jump in time, but, um, but that's okay. It's like 30 years between Equiano and like Frederick Douglass, his writings. But that's, that's okay. That's uh, just, I think, the sources, forces to make that jump. Uh, there's a reason this is the preeminent slave narrative of of the century of of the later 18th century. Um, So ultimately we have here a very important document talking about 18th century, Atlantic slavery, commercial capitalism as well, which never can be fully detached from that. Uh, Slavery was just an extension of commercial capitalism at the time. Um, We see that in terms of institutions that are still around today, insurance companies, for instance, which, which, you know, made money off the insuring of slaves hundreds of years ago, but still are these banks still exist now. Um, now, those who borrow the pro-slavery apologists of the old South th- that would say like, oh, slavery was some projection of feudalism in the modern world. We were holding out for a better way of life as as the, as, as capitalism came in. They want to separate. They wanted to separate slavery from capitalism. The famous story of this was one of the defenses of slavery was like, well, look how well we treat our slaves. We care for them in old age. We give them houses. We feed them every day. Look how well they're doing for all their work. And then, you know, then zoom in on a, a, a industrial worker in the north. Free, but living in misery and, and abandoned in old age and all that stuff. Right. Obviously, capitalism really sucked, but this distinction between capitalism and slavery is false. They were joined in the hip, right? And Equiano helps prove that. I don't think he's trying to make that argument. I'm just saying as readers today, knowing the history of slavery very, very well, um, I don't know if I wanna say is better than Equiano, but we have a bigger picture of, of the, the economic realities of, of the time and where the Atlantic world went these were really joined institutionally uh in terms of of, of the just the profit motive the supply chains and all these ways um so the abolitionist movement in this sense then becomes part of the struggle against capitalism the criminality and violence of capitalism more broadly right um so i guess that's sort of what i want to say about about equiano um not much more. I'm really excited, though, to get into um, the next slave narratives, uh, and in the next episode, I'll be again breaking with um, the 100 pages narrative just to to allow me to look at uh, this work on its own. Um, let me think. Yeah, I think I will. It's it's only like the problem is it's only like 20 pages, but it's the Confessions of Nat Turner. Uh, published in 1831 which comes is is a is a short little pamphlet really, that came out after the the Turner rebellion I'll see if if I feel I don't have enough to say about it I'll I'll just I'll I'll talk a little bit about it and then jump into Frederick Douglass but I, I really do think Frederick Douglass's narrative even is worth like its own episode so um and I'll probably be I'll probably have a lot to say about that but anyways that's all I want to say about Equiano for now I do want to say like we're going to move to like a different perspective when we get to antebellum slavery a much more national perspective one that looks forward to the civil war or looks back to the american revolution it's not as atlantic in scope uh there's going to be hints of it we will be able to smell the, the the commodity chains and the institutional things and the broader story of exploitation but nevertheless i think uh we're gonna get a much more national story going forward in these narratives, but that's also going to allow us to to really dig deep into the discourse about slavery in the years leading up to the Civil War, which uh should be a a, a great thing. So, anyways, uh that's it for now. Uh thanks and for listening and I will see you next time like the band that Moses led, gods are gonna trouble the water, oh, 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 wait. Wait in the water. Oh.